Good evening, everyone. My name's Katie, and I'll be reading the Bible for you this evening. So our Bible passage is Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 20. So if you have your Bibles here, feel free to open them up. Otherwise, you can follow along with the words on the screen. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Thanks for that reading, Katie, and welcome uh, to anyone that is visiting or new. Um, it's great to have you along. We've been working through Deuteronomy this term. We've come to the second last week of our series as we get to chapter 30. And it's really a climax passage. It's really a recommitment. Um, so um, as we get into what's quite a, a sobering little section. Let me pray for us and ask that God will help us as we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We acknowledge that it's living and active, that it judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And we pray tonight that you might be at work in each of us, that your spirit might convict us, challenge us, comfort us where needed, that we might hear your voice clearly and respond in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1996, you may recall, there was the Mount Everest disaster, as it's become known. It happened on the 10th and 11th of May that year. Uh, eight climbers died while descending from the summit in the midst of a blizzard. Maybe you saw the 2015 movie, which uh, dramatised the tragedy. The events received widespread publicity at the time and raised lots of questions about the commercialization of Everest climbs. And that's because there were numerous climbers that were at a high altitude on Everest in those two days. During this storm, there was a whole team under the Adventure Consultants Group, as they were known, led by Rob Hall. And then there was the Mountain Madness team, led by Scott Fisher. And following the disaster, several uh, survivors wrote memoirs about what went wrong. Uh, one of them, Graham Ratcliffe, who climbed to the south side of Everest on the 10th of May, noted in his book, 
that weather forecast had been given a long way ahead of time that there was a big storm building from the 8th of May and that it would peak at around the 10th or 11th. Uh, that information was passed on to Hall and Fisher leading their two groups and were told that it would peak in intensity on the 11th of May, but the expedition went ahead anyway. Uh, apparently, um, the, the climbers got through in a bit of a break in the storm, made it to the top, but as they came down late on the 10th of May, they hit the full force of the storm. But there were other decisions that were made too, lots of little decisions that ended up being life and death. Um, one of the things that happened was that the leaders of the teams would put in secure points and ropes for uh, the climbers to get through, but there'd been a delay in that, which created two bottlenecks at two key points where up to 30 climbers were lined up and were forced to wait for an hour and a half to be able to get up there. It meant then that their decision that was um, fairly uniform across all teams that you had to start descending from 2 p.m. so that you got down in good light was overlooked. And so a number of the climbers didn't make it to the top until after 2.30, 3 o'clock. And the result was that they were coming down in fading light in the midst of a blizzard and they were running out of oxygen. And so then there started being these relays of some of the uh, leaders and guides getting oxygen bottles up to people who are coming down in fading light in a huge storm and a chaos of a whole series of events took place. Seemingly small decisions proved to be at the end of the day life and death choices. Well, as we come to Deuteronomy 30 uh, this evening, we see God put life and death choices before his people. And so it's a serious passage. It forms the culmination of a covenant renewal ceremony, which has been going from chapter 27 through to this chapter 30, where Moses goes over what the people are committing to. And so we reach sort of the climax of that in this section. And I think this chapter in particular, in chapter 30, raises the question, how are God's people to grow in obedience to his word? They're being called to recommit themselves to following God, to obeying his commands. But how are God's people to grow in obedience to his word? Two answers to that question tonight. The first is this, by choosing life. The first thing is they must choose life. Notice again what Deuteronomy 30 states from verse 11 and verses 15 and 16. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So here comes the crunch point of the book. This is Moses' final speech to the people. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to enter, and they're being laid out the covenant again, which they'd first heard back in Exodus 19 and 20, where they're at Horeb or Mount Sinai. And here they are on the edge of the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And notice in verse 11, Moses argues that the commitment they're being called to is not too hard or difficult. It's not beyond them, we're told. Now, I think our surface reading of that is, well, it's just easy to obey God's laws and do what he's requiring. But really, the meaning is a little bit more subtle here. The meaning is more 
What is required of them is easily comprehended. See, the law was definitely very black and white. It was very clear what God required of his people. Israel could enjoy life in the promised land they were about to enter by expressing their love for God in obedience to his word to them. And that would be made in many small decisions each day, but the results would be either life or death. Now, you see, in chapter 28, a couple of chapters earlier, there's this long list of blessings and even longer list of curses as people responded rightly or wrongly to God's words to them. And so as we get to chapter 30, those words would already be ringing in the people's ears of what is at stake, of what God promises either to bless or to curse as they respond. And really the call to commitment reaches its crescendo in verses 19 and 20 where we read this notice. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Heaven and earth called as witnesses. There's a lot of formal solemnity here, isn't there, about this big choice before them. It's being emphasised. God's people need to make a decision. They need to choose life. And it involved loving God, listening to him, clinging to him. And such a choice would offer many years of blessing in the promised land that they'd just been waiting for. But Israel, notice, have to put God first. They're not to turn aside to serve idols. They're to take this moment seriously. They can't be careless about it. They're dealing with the all-powerful creator who has listed out the judgment that will fall on them if they're not careful in responding to him. This really is a life or death decision. My brother-in-law, Matt, is a botanist, and he runs a company uh, that specialises in reports on flora and fauna. And a few years ago now, uh, one of the guys working for him the fauna expert was out in the field and discovered this rare snake, um, which was dead. And so he brought it back in a plastic bag because he thought it was worthy of being kept in the museum in Sydney. And so he dropped it off to Matt's place because he was heading into Sydney the next day and said, oh, if you can look after this, here it is in the esky, kept on ice so that it will um, go well, not deteriorate further. Uh, if you can take that in for me, it'd be great. So that evening, uh, he's at home with the esky, and he decides he'll um, pull this snake out to show my sister, you know, what's in the box. And so he brings out this plastic bag with the snake and puts it on the lounge room floor. And then after a minute or two, it starts squirming a little bit. There's some kind of movement. My sister is freaking out, saying, this, this snake's alive. This is not dead. Matt's like, no, no, no. Like, you know, it's just the change in temperature. Maybe the muscles are relaxing. It's fine. There's no issue here. You have to... I better get down and have a closer look there. Gets down the floor and suddenly the snake comes up into attack position. It's like, okay, worst nightmare is a reality here. Um, but Matt's not one to worry about stuff like this. So he just rings up his colleague and says, look, what are we dealing with here? And he said, well, actually, it's a broad-headed eastern brown snake. It has a fatal bite. Um, you'd want to be careful with it. Okay, we've got some important decisions to make at this point. Matt's not still, you know, not very worried about this situation. Look, we just got to get the bag. I've seen it all in the docos. You know, you just drop it into a pillowcase, tie it up. Snake can't see what's happening. It's fine. Stick it in a box. I'll take it in tomorrow. 
Uh, my sister's less sure about this. She's holding the pillowcase like this, you know, while he picks up the plastic bag and drops it in. They managed to do that part fine. Um, and then my sister's like, well, here's an opportunity. Like, like, can you go in the esky? The esky can be, like, as far away from this house as possible, right? Okay, I don't want this... No, no, not at all, says Matt. Like, you know, if I put it back in the esky, it might really die of the cold. You know, this is a valuable snake. We have to preserve it. This has to stay inside in a nice warm box. And so they get out one of those you know, plastic clip-top ones, you know, clip off the sides. You put books in or something like that. Put the snake in that and we'll leave it on the lounge room floor. <laughs> they do so. Matt goes off to bed, has a lovely night's sleep. And my sister is writing report. She's a teacher. And she thinks, look, you can't be too sure. This is life and death. I think I'll go and put some books out on top of the box so the snake can't get out. And she goes in a study, closes the door, sort of covers the gap under the door just in case, you know, you're dealing with a deadly animal here. And she struggles to write her reports and gets sleep later that night. That's right, isn't it? I mean, we, just as we don't mess with a deadly animal because failure has such consequences... I mean, how much more so with the creator God who has the power of life and death in his hands? The Israelites needed to be in reverent awe of God for the consequences of rejecting his covenant, of turning aside to follow idols, was certain destruction. They'd had that detailed in fearful description in chapter 28. And ultimately, there would be removal from the land, the very land that they were about to enter into, they were going to be thrown out of if they turned aside from God. Life and death choose life. But there's a second answer to this question about how God's people are to grow in obedience, respond to his word rightly. And that is by knowing that failure is not final. By realizing that failure is not final. Notice what is recorded at the start of the chapter, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered to you. Scattered you. Um, the appeal to choose between life and death is actually a common theme throughout the Old Testament. But though the law is not difficult to understand, it's actually hard for God's people to obey it fully each and every day, let alone each moment. And so as we see in these verses that actually precede the call to commitment, God already predicts their failure to obey him. Notice here it's not about if, verse 1 starts with when, announcing the certainty of the covenant curses falling on his people. The heaviest of which, as I mentioned, is removal from the land. And we're told that they're going to be scattered amongst the nations. Notice their failure would lead to God removing them. And this is pointing to events that would happen way down the track centuries later. I mean, it's ultimately pointing forward to the 10 northern tribes being smashed by the Assyrian Empire in 721 BC and the southern empire in Judah being smashed by the Babylonians in 586 and taken to Babylon. But there's the promise here that that failure even will not be final. Indeed, God did bring them back, of course, at least the southern kingdom from Babylon returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt. 
But here is Moses announcing as they enter the land how they're going to be exiled from the land and then come back later. Well, God's plan of redemption would not fail even if his people failed. Beyond the curse of exile lay the promise of restoration because if they turn back to God, he would be gracious to them and return them to the promised land. However, I wonder if for you this leaves a gnawing concern that I have, which is, well, you know, their failure to love God and obey his word. Like, is anything going to be different once they return from exile? What about the period from now up until the exile? Isn't their performance going to be up and down all the time? Are they just in an endless cycle of frustration because they can never fully obey God's word, that they can't do what God's calling them to do? They always fall short. Well, of course, as the Old Testament slowly unfolds, a new covenant is foreshadowed, pointing forward to a Messiah, a Christ who would come and offer a way forward. And in time, of course, we know that Jesus would arrive and he would be the one that would reverse the curse. Jesus would reverse the curse. So notice what is written in Galatians 3, verse 13. Key passages, the Apostle Paul unpacks how this fits. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. You see, as Christ died on the cross, he bore the curse of the law. He took upon himself our sins, our failure to meet God's perfect law, his commands, our failure to choose life every day. And the result is that those who trust in Jesus can be forgiven. They can be redeemed from their failure to respond fully to God's word. And this will make such a difference. In fact, Deuteronomy 30 gives us a little insight into how things could change once the Messiah came. Have a look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, because it foreshadows what Jesus can produce. Moses writes, No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. You see, these words mean there's, there's somehow going to be a change here so that people are capable of fulfilling what God has placed before them. And these words are taken up by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. And he applies them to Christians like those who trust in Jesus here tonight. Paul writes, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But what does it say? Quoting Deuteronomy, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. They're wonderful words, words of salvation. This salvation that we can receive through faith in Jesus puts God's words in our mouths, in our hearts, in a new way. And so rather than God's word being forgotten all the time and set aside as we drift off into other paths, as the Israelites struggled so often and so often did, now there is this opportunity for God's words to always be on our hearts, always on our lips. Well, how does that happen? How does this man, Jesus, dying on the cross, produce that change within me? What happens next for that to occur? 
Well, I think we're helped again by Deuteronomy chapter 30. Have a look at verse 6, because again, this sort of scans forward looking to the future. Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. See, this offer of a new heart, a transformed heart, could only be produced by God in us. And we know through reading the New Testament that that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what some of the prophets took up when they foreshadowed the new covenant that was coming. So Ezekiel in chapter 36 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. So here is a game changer. I don't know if you've um, ever seen a person in need of a heart transplant. You know, they're breathless. They're often not able to walk more than a few meters before they need to rest and sit down, catch their breath. They often have to sleep even sitting up because they can't lie flat. Their lungs will fill with fluid because their heart is not strong enough, strong enough to pump blood around their body fast enough. And they often have swollen limbs as a result for the same reason, and then they're forced into having a very bland diet with a very low fluid intake. And so their quality of life will so often plummet. They lose interest in food, actually, and so often you know, can't think about physical activity. Taking part in even the mildest piece of exercise is just impossible. And they reach a point eventually where they just can't help themselves. They're going to need somebody to give them a new heart if there's to be any change. But what a radical change occurs if they're given a new heart, if they get a transplant, especially if they're young. You know, they're able to suddenly run around the block without getting breathless. They're interested in sport again. They can take part. They've got new abilities, new desires, new interests. The transformation in the person's life can be truly radical. They're a new person seeking to live a new life. Now, I believe that this picture of change for a heart transplant patient is a useful analogy of the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. A believer suddenly has a strong desire to live for God. They want to do things his way and they're enabled suddenly by the Holy Spirit to grow in obedience to God's word. Now, Christians usually understand and taught this, understand the great gift it is to have received the Spirit, but then can still be frustrated in their walk with the Lord as they continue to struggle to make progress as quickly as they'd like, as they still battle with sin. Even with the help of the Holy Spirit, progress can feel slow. And this ongoing battle of growing in godliness, which is a lifelong process, is something that we're called to give ourselves to in the New Testament. The big word in the Bible is sanctification, and it's going to be an ongoing work in you this side of heaven if you're a believer. And the Apostle Paul, I think, helpfully addresses this issue for us in Romans 6. What attitude should we have knowing these things. We'll have a look from verse 11 of Romans 6. Paul writes, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not 
offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. See, sometimes I think Christians find this process hard because they don't recognize the battle they're in. The need to keep working at growing. Now, this ongoing task of pursuing holiness is sometimes viewed as no task at all. Uh, Some will express it as just let go and let God, like he'll just produce change in you, as it were, by osmosis. It'll just happen. You don't really have to be that intentional about it. But did you notice in verses 11 to 14 here how such a passive response is contradicted? And Paul's got actions for us to take. Count yourselves dead, verse 11. Do not let sin reign, verse 12. Do not offer your bodies, verse 13. Christians have a new life, past tense. We've been given it. But that doesn't mean we sit back and allow sin in our life. We're to strive in growing in obedience to God's word, just as the Israelites were called to it. And yet we have the great privilege of having the Spirit to help us. We're to offer our bodies to righteousness, not to wickedness. And for us too, this is a daily choice. Now, maybe you're getting tired of that civil war going on inside you. You recognize it. But you have to engage in that battle. And it's a battle that didn't exist before you became a believer. You had not received the spirit that is now convicting you of sin, that's driving you on to live for God. But now our mind, our will, is a war zone. And we just can't grow unless we work with the Spirit and continue to respond to God's Word. We need to be led. I used to work for an engineering firm, and my boss had a Belgian shepherd. Um, He brought it to work every day. It was actually my footstool. It was quite a large footstool. Um, But uh, Jake, the Belgian shepherd, would uh, terrify um, people that turned up at the door, like the delivery men. Um, But he was very well trained. He'd been to obedience uh, school. He could respond to a whole bunch of commands on cue. But when my boss took him for a walk, occasionally he'd decide that he wanted to be master of the walk rather than my boss. And so he would just take off at a rapid pace. He was just dragging them along the road, doing it his way at his pace, fighting to just go his way, pulling against the lead all the time. And if they get to the park and they make the mistake of letting him off the lead because they just need to get this energy out of him, let him run around the park, well, then they had no control at that point. And if he decided just to run off, which he did sometimes, he'd just disappear for a couple of hours until he felt like coming home. And they could yell and shout until they'd lost their voice. But if he decided not to listen to the commands he full well knew, they had no control. He could simply ignore them if he had decided to be his own master. He needed a lead. He needed to be led. That's the same with us as believers. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit who causes us to heed our master, Jesus. But if we're always turning away from what our renewed mind and conscience knows is true, then we're pushing against, working against the Spirit all the time. And if we ignore the Spirit's leading, then there's just no amount of rules or laws in this world that will ever keep us on God's path. They have no power to change us. Just ask the Israelites. 
Now, there is a second implication of this ongoing battle for us, this process of growing in obedience to God's word. And that is to grasp that this inner struggle is actually the normal experience of a believer. I think the problem for us on this point is that so often we just want to think that we should be able to get it all together. Our life should just come together after some time as a Christian and it should be no trouble at all. And sometimes we'll come across Christians that will speak like that. They'll speak like they're always victorious over sin, that there's just no issue for them. There's never a struggle. But I want to say to you tonight, your walk with God will always have ups and downs. We will not be perfect this side of heaven. There will always be a battle that we need to engage in. And if we know that that is the normal experience, then we'll stick in the fight. Yes, there'll be setbacks and failures sometimes, but there'll be an ongoing upward trajectory as we grow in godliness, as we grow in our ability to be led by the Spirit one step at a time. So as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5 to us, keep in step with the Spirit, that you might grow in likeness to Jesus your Saviour, you might truly honour your master that you are seeking to follow. Alexander the Great, the famous Greek general who conquered the whole known world 300 years before Christ, had a super loyal army. And it was because he was a great leader. If they were attacking a city, he'd be first over the wall and his men would just follow him. Follow my example. And so when he discovered a deserter who had left his army was recaptured and brought before him and was told that the man's name was also Alexander. He was so angry and he said to the man, you give up your cowardice or you give up your name. Well, how much more does this apply to Christians who bear Christ's name, the risen ruler of all the universe who are called to be transformed into his likeness, where to imitate Christ, his holy character. We're dead to our old self. We need to Old self, we need to keep going onwards, putting on the new self that God is calling us to. And so God is saying to you and to me tonight, keep giving up your old ways. Live your new life that is by grace because you bear my name, because you are united to my son, because you have been granted the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we want to be those if we have come to you through repentance and faith in your Son, that are those who are truly growing in obedience to your word. We want to learn from your people of old who look forward to a day when the Messiah would come, when there would be help as your Spirit gave new life, enabled us to live in a way that responded to your word. Lord, we thank you for the great gift of salvation, for the great gift of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you might help us to be those that are not just happy to drift along, but are striving to live for you, not in order to earn our way, for we can't, but just to respond to the grace that you've already shown us in the giving of your Son. Help us to be those who honour our Master Jesus with all that we do. For we pray it in his name. Amen.